uh, the book of Joshua. Uh, and so in many ways, uh, as we've gone through this, um, this is a difficult book. Joshua is a difficult book uh, for many reasons. First, um, it is about a uh, time and place in history that is almost completely different from our own. Uh, that makes Joshua challenging to relate to. Uh, much of the, the content of, is just so separate from the experience uh, it's so different from our context. So it's difficult to make Joshua relatable and most attempts to do so are clumsy at best. Uh, Second, Joshua contains many themes that actually make us uncomfortable. Uh, You know, it's basically about the execution and forceful removal of the Canaanites. And so Joshua seems to reinforce ideas of racism, tribalism, and violence that seem more at home in versions of Christianity that would, assi- would align themselves for, uh, with militaristic nationalism. Uh, this is a favorite book of theirs. And part of what I want to do is kind of rescue uh, this book. And so I've been arguing that far from uh, endorsing genocide or ethnic cleansing, Joshua is a deeply subversive text. It, in fact, is challenging uh, many ancient Near Eastern assumptions, most of which revolve around the subject of identity. In fact, I've chosen uh, the the idea of identity, the theme of identity, as kind of a a way uh, for us to approach this book. Uh, So this idea of identity, who is in, who is out, what makes someone an insider or an outsider, and what would, should we think about identity, particularly as it relates to the church? Uh, and that's become a very prevalent topic, uh, identity politics. We hear this word all the time, tribalism. It's everywhere. And so I think it's these ideas and looking at this concept of identity uh, that Joshua focused on and mostly is purposely subverting uh, common assumptions of his day uh, that makes this work relevant to us. And so if we think about the church, for example, on one hand, we in the church see ourselves as a distinctive people. We have a distinctive set of beliefs. On the other hand, we are called to be a people who love their neighbors, who consider uh, others before ourselves, and we pledge loyalty to Christ rather than uh, family or tribe or king or nation state. As uh, Paul famously said in, in Galatians, in Christ Jesus, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. And when Jesus is asked, what is the mark of those who comprise the kingdom of God? Jesus responds with two principles, love God and love your neighbor. In other words, there's the particularity of the allegiance to God, but then there is also the universality of the concern for others. And Jesus makes it clear that adopting one means also adopting the other. He refuses to divide those two concepts. And so I think we need to think through these issues, uh, these issues of identity, because the task is not simple. It's, it's very daunting because we live out our ethic in a world that is not perfect. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but our world is complicated. It's broken. It's fallen. And it limits our ability to project our ideals. And so it requires not easy, uh, canned, uh, simple solutions but rather wisdom. And I think it's this wisdom that the book of Joshua is trying to develop to find its own uh, way to work out its ethic in this broken and complex world. And so on its surface, Joshua is a simplistic story, right? 
Um, you know, I'm going to kind of give like a broad idea about where we've come and then lead to this conclusion because I think it kind of, I think it does kind of tie things together. So on its surface, you know, the Israelites enter this land of Canaan, this land that was promised to them of God, and they take the land from the Canaanites. That's kind of the simple uh, story. Uh, that's the one uh, we teach in Sunday school and, we, you know, we grew up with. If you've been in the church, that's what you know. And so, you know, you grow up hearing like, uh, you know, this, the, 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 the conquest is kind of like this good versus bad story, right? Very, very simple. Uh, evil's defeated. Uh, and the Israelites were able to do this because they were obedient to God. When they obey God, uh, good things happen. And when they don't obey God, things bad things happen. And Joshua details example of both. Uh, the Israelites uh, follow God's rules when they attack Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. Uh, however, they attack another city called Ai and they don't do uh, follow the rules. They do things in their own initiative and they're defeated. Now, this is exactly how the world looks like if we read, like, for example, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy kind of has this real simple view of how things work. And in fact, Joshua references much of Deuteronomy uh, with direct quotes. If you do the right thing, you receive God's blessing. If you do the wrong thing, then you receive God's curse. That's kind of the theology of Deuteronomy. It's, this very, it's a very simple, it's a very mechanistic view that provides a clear and certain approach to life. And, and at times we find that appealing, right? Like we kind of want these really simple answers to things. We want certainty, you know? Who, who wants to have debates all the time? We want to know what the truth is. But the problem and I think it's a problem that if we're honest that any of us who have actually, I don't know, lived in the world have figured out is that life is never that simple. Um, here's the thing, though. Uh, I think the Bible knows that, too. And I think that's what makes the Bible such an interesting and complex work when we read it that way. When we decide that the Bible actually isn't this really simple, mechanistic book, we tend to read the Bible as if there is one clear, consistent teaching, and I don't think that's correct. Um, it makes things easier, it comforts us, and it gives us that certainty we crave, but it's also reductionist. It, it removes the complexity, it takes away from the Bible. And when our simplistic notions of the world meet you know, cold, hard reality, we are left with a faith that is actually more deficient than the experience, okay? Um, but it need not be this way. One of the things that, that, that we at Resurrection Church, you know, Chris and I are big on is we need to actually, instead of running from this complexity, we actually need to embrace it. Uh, the Bible does this. It challenges itself. Rather than a single consistent teaching, the Bible is in like this dynamic dialogue with itself. And the result of this dialogue is that we see real wisdom emerging. Remember I said, like, that's the problem. And rather than these really simplistic ideas, uh, what we need is something more than that. We need wisdom. And we see this all over in the book, in, in the Bible. So for example, uh, going back to Deuteronomy, we have this, you know, pretty simple idea. There's, uh, if you do good things, good things happen to you. And if you do bad things, bad things happen to you. But then there's also uh, this one book of the Bible uh, where uh, that whole idea is challenged, right? So think about Job. I mean, Job is basically like a complete uh, opposite of that. Job does everything right and bad things happen to him, right? Now, 
what do we do with that? Um, think about the book of Proverbs, right? The book of Proverbs is, uh, you know, here, here's some smart things to do. And then right after that, we have the book of Ecclesiastes, which is like, the world's just crazy, man. You can do what you want and just crazy stuff happens. I don't know. You know, it's like uh, totally different. Um, you can think of uh, something even like uh, the, there's the book of Nahum. You probably never read Nahum. Uh, but the book of Nahum, if you have read it, is about how like terrible the Assyrians are. And uh, the Assyrians were really terrible. They were basically like the Nazis of the ancient world. But then right next to Nahum, you have the book of Jonah. And remember, Jonah is about uh, God saying, hey, I care about those people too. Uh, so, you know, the Bible is a lot more complex than we give it credit for a lot of times. And I think that it's that complexity that we need to embrace. Um, you know, when we began our study of Joshua, I compare Joshua to the song by Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA. Okay, so if you know this song, it's got this really upbeat, patriotic chorus. And that's the, what most people focus on. But then if you listen to the lyrics of the song, it's actually not very upbeat. It's actually uh, very pessimistic. It's challenging the idea of, uh, of, of, of the patriotism that underlies the chorus. And it's really interesting because like uh, a lot of, uh, you know, very, they'll, they'll play this song at like patriotic rallies. But, you know, if you listen to the words, it's like it's not right. You know, so it's really interesting. And I think that's a good way to think about Joshua. Joshua's doing the same thing because the book of Joshua is a contradiction of itself. Uh, the book begins with this theme that the land of Canaan must be taken over and possessed, that the Mosaic law must be obeyed and all the Canaanites must be exter exterminated. Now, as distasteful as we find some of those ideas in our modern world, these goals would have actually been like completely consistent in the ancient tribal societies, right? Um, I think we forget how brutal the ancient world is. Um, here, here's a quote I, I, I like. This is by Genghis Khan. And uh, I think it captures uh, this tribal mentality. There was actually... Um, a few years ago, there was a Genghis Khan exhibit at uh, the History Museum here. And uh, we went and they had this quote up on the wall. Um, I thought, oh, it'd be nice if we got that cross-stitched and put it up in the kitchen. But Tamsin wasn't for it. Um, the greatest happiness is to scatter your enemy, to drive him before you, to see his cities reduced to ashes, to see those who love him shrouded in tears, and to gather into your bosom his wives and daughters. I mean, that is a uh, kind of brutal approach to life. Um, and it's horrifying, but I think it gives you an idea about like what the norm was back then. Uh, there's another quote I'm, I'm fond of by Thucydides. Uh, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. But here's the thing about Joshua though. While it's written in this style and this language of the typical ancient conquest narrative, it's actually constantly challenging these ideas. 
So if we look at the first 12 chapters, which is the first major section of Joshua, um, so Joshua's basically divided. There's 12, st- there's 12 chapters about like conquering the land, and then there's like another 11 chapters about how the land's distributed that are really boring, and then we have their conclusion. But if we look at the 12 chapters, we find, find this dialogue, this dynamic dialogue that, um, that, that actually challenges, uh, is full of contradictions. Um, while we have an account of th- we have an account of three battles that are fought against the Canaanites. There's the battle of the city of Jericho. There's the battle of the city of Ai, and there's then a uh, battle against a combined Canaanite army. However, each of these battles is introduced uh, by a story about an encounter with the Israelites and the Canaanites. Uh, and what is interesting is these counters that introduce the, the, the battles actually occur on an individual level, right? So they're not these abstract ideas, you know, they're not these battles, but they're actually like real people having real uh, interaction with each other. So for example, the story of Rahab, who's a Canaanite, introduces the battle of Jericho. Uh, the story of the Israelite Achan introduces the battle of Ai. And the story of the Gibeonites introduces this battle against the combined Canaanite armies. And all three illustrate the contradictions that we see in Joshua. A covenant is made with Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, in which she's saved from destruction. Uh, And that's despite the fact that we were supposed to, according to Deuteronomy, you're supposed to kill all the Canaanites and not make covenants with them. Then we have this story about Achan. Achan is like this pure-breaded Israelite. We're given his genealogy to show like this guy is like the Israelite among Israelites. He's got like this long family history. Um, but he's executed for taking Canaanite plunder, which he was commanded not to do. Uh, he, the Gibeonites, who are another Canaanite group, actually trick the Israelites into making a covenant with them. Uh, now, We've looked at each of these stories in depth in previous sermons, but what I want us to do today, because I'm trying to do a conclusion here, I'm trying to show where Joshua's going with all this, is to notice this pattern. Uh, When we look at these stories together and see this pattern, we see an important point that Joshua's trying to make, which I think is going to help us make sense of these contradictions and see the conclusion. And what we find is this pattern all centers on these issues of identity because all these stories basically challenge the idea of what is an Israelite, who is an Israelite, and who is a Canaanite, which is basically what I think the whole book of Joshua is doing. And I think it's, a, it's important to what Joshua is, the point Joshua is trying to make. So for example, Rahab proves herself to be a God-fearer. She acts like an ideal Israelite. She even quotes Deuteronomy at one point. And this is, this, this is despite the fact that she's a Canaanite prostitute, which is like, would seem to be the complete opposite of an ideal Israelite. And then we have Achan, who's, you know, this purebred uh, Israelite. Uh, he would seem to be the ideal Israelite, but he steals the plunder of the Canaanites that was supposed to be devoted to God. And so he's been revealed as sharing more in common with the Canaanites than the Israelites. We have the Gibeonites who hear uh, these stories about the acts of God for the Israelites. And so motivated are they to align themselves with this God that they resort to this uh, deception to trick the Israelites into entering with a covenant with them. 
and their resourcefulness and cunning uh, demonstrates their belief in God. Uh, In many ways, actually, the language kind of uh, parallels with um, Jacob, so Israel's ancestor. They act like kind of like Jacob, the, the, the ancestor of the Israelites. So, here, the Gibeonites, though a whole tribe of Canaanites, are, are not just a weird exception like Rahab, but they show that they are more like an ideal Israelite than they are a Canaanite. So, you know, my point is that more than battles and victories, the battles and victories are kind of almost a, a side point when you read it this way. Joshua is trying to tell us something about identity and what it means to be an Israelite. And what Joshua is doing is is challenging the very idea of what it means to be an Israelite. In other words, it's not about ethnicity. Now, that's kind of a little bit more obvious to us. Like, we kind of get that because we're kind of, you know, especially uh, at least the way we like to think of ourselves in America, maybe not so much how we act. You know, we're this melting pot. We've got people from all over. And so we, we you know, I... Ideally, we don't think about ethnicity, uh, but you know, back in the tribal world of Israel, that was a big deal. And Canaanites, uh, like Rahab and Ge- the Gibeonites, are shockingly actually incorporated into the community, while an Israelite by blood, like Achan, is removed. And so, what Joshua wants us to understand is that blood or kinship and ethnicity cannot define Israel. Now, nor as we read, can, uh, can, can Israel be defined just by uh, another, uh, another big marker, religious observance or the law, right? So we know the law is like super important. But, uh, but while loyalty to God and God alone is emphasized and non-negotiable in, in Joshua, Israel actually does a pretty poor job of following out the commands laid out in Deuteronomy, especially as it concerns the Canaanites. Remember, they make a covenant twice with the, with the Canaanites, which is a pretty direct command given in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, let me read it to you. And when the Lord gives them, the Canaanites, over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for their sons. So that's pretty, pretty unambiguous, pretty clear. Uh, but yet Israel breaks this commandment. And in fact, Rahab actually becomes one of the ancestors of David. So that's a pretty big deal. Uh, also for us, David, of course, is an ancestor of Christ. So, you know, once again, Rahab, pretty important. She becomes pretty much an insider. And so one of the most prominent contradictions in Joshua, which is a book full of contradictions, is that Israel is ordered in Deuteronomy to remove all the Canaanites. Yet we are repeatedly told that there were huge areas of Canaan that were still controlled by the Canaanite. I mean, basically the whole book of Judges is about this. So the weird thing is that Joshua repeatedly makes statements about how the Israelites were completely successful and they did everything right. But clearly they didn't fulfill their mandate, and Joshua knows this. So it seems that the Israelites could be quite flexible, at least in their interpretation of the law, and not so much the strict legalists that we often make them out to be. But what we learn in Joshua is the law is more of a means to an end, and so obedience to the law is not an end into itself. Nor does the land or geography define the Israelites. 
Uh, Joshua includes an account of three tribes that settle outside the boundaries of the promised land that God had clearly delineated. And a few weeks ago, we saw that even gender norms were being challenged in Joshua, another you know, ancient Near Eastern assumption. And so all these questions about identity that we've been focusing on are being held up, they're being examined, they're being challenged. And so what we learn from Joshua, what he wants us to understand, that identity is not founded on geography or ethnicity or patriarchy or even the law. But then the question remains. And it's the question that uh, the last time I, I preached from uh, Joshua, uh, Ali uh, pointed out in our post-sermon discussion. So if these are not the foundations for identity, then what is? And I think our passage from Joshua 25 that they read today, which is the, you know, the conclusion of this book, is the answer to the question. So let's look at this passage. And if we look at this passage, we find Joshua gathering all the people together at this place, Shechem. And he delivers a speech in which he recounts the history of God and his people. So first of all, the first thing I want you to notice here is that uh, what Joshua gives them Okay, and their conclusion about their identity is not so much any kind of logical argument. It's not an appeal to morality, though there are elements of both of those in the story. Uh, These people are God's people because they have a shared relationship with God and with each other. And so that means that their identity is not something that's uh, abstract, it's not something objective, but it's based on a journey, an experience that uh, stretches back in time and unites them as a community. In other words, they are not autonomous, disconnected individuals, but they're people who were rescued from Egypt. These are people whose God overcame the Egyptian army, they overcame the prophet Balak, they overcame Jericho, and they were given the land that was promised by God. They were a people that were brought together because they have encountered and experienced God. They are part of God's story. So my first point about identity uh, as God's people or what it means to be an insider, what it means to be an Israelite, what it means uh, to be a, a Christian in our context, and that it's based on a relationship. It's based on a relationship with a history and it's experiential. But also... Notice what this passage tells us about this relationship. What do we read in verse 2? We read that long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham of Nahor, and they served other gods. So the passage starts off by telling us, let me tell you something about you Israelites. You guys are actually like, idol worshipers. You're actually pagan. You're not from here. You're outsiders. You started out as outsiders. In fact, uh, Abraham's family was from a city called Ur. And what we know about Ur is it was a center of of moon worship. Furthermore, even the the names, Terah and Sarah, we know are named for uh, moon deities. And so the people of Israel uh, can't claim any kind of special status because of righteousness or anything like that because their origin is not in the promised land. In fact, they're actually a stone's throw away from Babylon, which is, of course, like the big terrible place in the Old Testament. And, and what Joshua is trying to explain is that they are actually not too different from the Canaanite rivals. They come from a pagan and idolatrous background. They were outsiders. And so that begs the question, 
what is the difference between the Israelites and the Canaanites? If they are both come from pagans, what is their difference? And so that leads to our second point. It can only be one thing. It's this and only this. It's the action of God. It is God who defines their identity because it is God who called Abraham out from among the idolaters. Uh, I think it tells us in Acts that, that Abraham was a pagan dwelling among pagans. It is God who does everything in Joshua's retelling of the history of Israelites in these verses. Throughout the passage, the subject is God and Israel's the object. And so Israel only exists by divine initiative. God calls them out, God frees them, God fights for them, God defeats their enemies for them, and now they live in a land which they did not labor, and in cities they did not build, and they eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive trees that they did not plant. So the second point about identity that we read here is that it is about what God does. However, that is also not the end of the passage. Uh, while Israel is the passive recipient of God's actions in 13, in verse 14, there is a change. God, Joshua demands that the people reject all other gods. Joshua demands that the people make a choice. Choose this day who you will serve. The people may have a relationship with God. They may have been called out by God, but they still must respond to that call. We have seen that the Israelite Achan chose the gods of Canaan over Yahweh. We have seen Rahab rejected the gods of her people and instead risked everything for Yahweh. Their identity was not set, but it was rather based on their choice to serve Yahweh. Uh, this passage uses the word serve, serve. It's avad in Hebrew. It uses it over and over again. Verse 2 reminds the Israelites that they once served other gods. And then in verse 14, 15, verses 14 and 15, the word served is used seven times to refer to this choice between Israel. Uh, if, if you keep reading the passage that, that I kind of cut off for time's sake, in verses 16 through 24, we find another set of seven times in which the word serve is used. So for Joshua, identity is also about choice. It's about who do you serve? Do you serve the God of the Canaanites or the gods that their ancestors serve? Or do you serve Yahweh? Identity then for Joshua is about making this choice. Now, while choosing among deities in an ancient world is probably a weird and distant idea to us, whom we serve is not. In reality, we always are making this choice. And so ultimately, I think that this is a choice about loyalty. Who are we loyal to? How do we orient our life? Do we commit ourselves to things like prosperity? Do we commit ourselves to pleasure? Do we commit ourselves to a political movement or uh, some other cause? Do we commit ourselves to some sort of uh, abstract ethical standard in an attempt to be a good person? Or do we devote ourselves to the living God who created us, who we can experience, and who we can be in relationship with. And it's this that Joshua tells us should be the basis for our identity. And here's the thing. We're actually like really familiar with this concept because we have a word that we throw around all the time to express this concept. It's called faith. This is what faith is about. This is what faith is at its heart. Faith is about loyalty. And what Joshua wants us to see is, is our ultimate loyalty. 
who we place our faith in that forms who we are, that forms our identity. Joshua rejects the idea that her faith should be in an ethnic group or a place or even a moral code, but rather it should be in faith in Yahweh. So what does that mean for us? Well, if we read the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the most perfect representation of of Yahweh, of God, is Jesus. The Gospel of John says that the person who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. So just like the people who Joshua spoke with, we form our identity in the same way, by faith in Jesus. By placing our faith in Jesus, we reject all other claims of loyalty. And so our identity is shaped by Jesus. We serve Jesus and his teachings. And so we try to work out his aims in the world. You know, I recently um, was thinking through this issue, this issue about identity and all these ideas about what faith means. I had a conversation with a friend of mine uh, who's completely non-religious. And my friend was really confused by the actions and attitudes of some people uh, she knew who were Christians. Uh, they were perplexing to her because they were acting based on certain uh, apocalyptic end-time beliefs about, uh, that are shared by some evangelical Christians. And so I was trying to explain to her, you know, what that mindset was like. I was trying to kind of give her an idea. And of course, she was horrified by it, uh, some of the implications. And she was really confused, too, because she knew I was a Christian and and seemed to actually disapprove of, uh, of these things. So she asked me, like, well, how can you identify as a Christian? And so, you know, at first I did probably what many of us would do. I was like, well, you know, there's lots of different approaches to Christianity. Um. But then, you know, I kind of realized, okay, this, this, this is like a, a, this really specialized, you know, kind of inside, uh, inside baseball, you know, uh, 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 workshop talk uh, was boring her. It also wasn't really answering her question. And so, you know, as I was thinking, like, well, how, how can I approach this better? Um, I started to rethink the basis of my loyalty. You know, what is, what is my faith? You know, instead of maybe like getting into a discussion about, you know, who, who's right and who's wrong about this uh, doctrine, why am I a Christian? And as I thought about it, I realized that, that my answer to her w- was simply about competing doctrine or system of thought. And it wasn't really wrong, but it seemed inadequate. Was that all my commitment was? Was it just a set of principles and beliefs that, that I had perfected versus these people who had gotten it all wrong? Well, in terms of Joshua and identity, just following a set of legal principles and making sure you have the right interpretation isn't what identity is about. And so as I thought harder about it, I answered her question as to why I was a Christian in a different way. And here's what the answer I gave was. Because of Christ. I told my friend that when I read the words of Christ, I see a beauty, I see a purpose, I see a wisdom that rises above everything else. There is power and authority in Jesus' words. I mean, who among us can read the Sermon of the Mount and not walk away a changed person? You know, just think about like, uh, you know, when you read and study the parable of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. I mean, they're amazingly captivating about what it means and what it means for us as a, a person and what Christ is trying to teach us about the world. When we read, when Jesus describes the kingdom of God, I, I'm mesmerized by this perfection of Jesus's vision. 
So that, I think, is the answer here to our identity, to what, what we should be focused around. And it's this, it's Christ, it's Christ alone. That's where we find our identity. And, and if you think about, you know, as we look through Joshua, what Joshua is trying to do, you know, uh, Jesus is, is someone that we experience, that we have a relationship with him. He's not an abstract set of doctrines. He is a, he is a person, a person that we can relate to, who calls us out and speaks to us, who dies for us and challenges us to build a better world, who asks us to be part of the world by placing our faith in him and his vision of love of God, and love of neighbor. And this is the world, this world that he lays out is the world as it should be. It's a vision that we are called by Christ to share in and take part in. So we compel, so, so that makes this compelling. It makes it, uh, we are compelled to reject all other competing visions and instead place our loyalty and faith in the person who illustrates, proclaims, demonstrates, and ultimately gives his life for this world. He defeats the greatest obstacle of all, death, so that we can have life and have life more abundantly in a world that has been made right. And I think it's here in Christ, in this, that our identity is found. So choose now whom you will serve.